Blog Talk Radio. the Food and Drug Administration decided that genetically modified organisms were the functional equivalent of conventional foods. They arrived at this decision without testing GMOs for allergenicity, toxicity, antibiotic resistance, and functional characteristics. The aim of the feed industry is a trillion dollars of profits from royalties every year. And the aim is no farmer should have access to their own seed. Aim is every farmer should be forced into the market every year. All across our country, our people are becoming more and more conscious about the foods that they are eating and the foods that they are serving to their kids. And this is certainly true for genetically engineered foods. Americans have a right to know if their food is genetically engineered. Hello and welcome to Mad Science, the Genetic Crossroad. I am your host, Anna Kavanaugh, and I want to thank you for joining me for the broadcast tonight. You know, since I began broadcasting on the show last year, there have been so many happenings and new developments concerning GMOs, and I'm talking across the board. Governmental policies, foreign relations, uh, corporation alliances and acquisitions, GMO labeling issues, and clever new ways to commercialize and implement this technology, particularly in the agricultural sector. But applications such as biofuels and new levels of pest control and even the development of hybrid biomachines, which is the idea of fusing man with machine, are also being researched more and more. We are most definitely living genetically modified, so tonight I thought we'd get up to speed on the biotech world here and now. The biotech industry is continuing to grow at an alarming rate. China has seen double-digit growth in the sector, going from the slowest to grow in the industry to now one of the most accelerated in growth. A New World Bank report says that Africa's farmers and agribusinesses have one of the world's biggest potentials for growth and could create a trillion-dollar food market by the year 2030. Canada, Australia, the European Union, South America, and others are slowly being won over by the allure of economic advantage and, frankly, the cashing in on this industry. Even countries who have been very vocal and determined about keeping Monsanto out of their borders, even going so far as to issue bans or other restrictions on the import of Monsanto products, are revealing contradictions when it comes to their own use and development of biotech. They seem to want to eat the poison, they just don't want to eat it out of Monsanto's hand. But in biotech, the dominant global player still remains the United States, who is actively vying to stay at the top. Of the largest biotech agribusiness companies in the world, the top three of them, Monsanto, DuPont, and Dow, all reside here in the United States. The largest pharmaceutical companies, such as Johnson & Johnson, Pfizer, Merck, and Eli Lilly, have their headquarters here as well, and all of them have a stake in the multi-billion dollar potential that biotech offers. Biotech has grown so large that we now have to break it down into separate categories. Blue, red, white, and green. Blue biotechnology deals with aquatic and marine organisms. 
Although this field is currently in its infancy, it is speculated to receive much more interest in the near future with regard to developing and harvesting algae meant for biofuels. Then we have red biotechnology, and this applies to medical processes like the genetic engineering of organisms to produce antibiotics or uh, using stem cells to regenerate human tissues. White biotechnology applies more to industrial processes. Uh, an example of this would be designing an organism to produce a chemical or using enzymes as industrial catalysts to speed up production. And finally, we have green biotechnology, which is biotechnology applied to agricultural processes. We've concentrated so much on this in the show because it is the most pervasive and directly involves consumers at a fundamental level, dealing with the food we eat and the nutrition we ingest for our bodies. When I've mentioned biotechnology in the past, the green variety is what I have been inferring. Green biotech involves the designing of transgenic plants with the intent to produce higher yields or enable them to grow in challenging climate conditions such as drought, wet environments, or adverse soil conditions. But most of all, to be tolerant to chemical pesticides that are commonly sprayed in greater quantities today on food crops. Now, green biotech also involves the development of something called farming and food products. And both of those are spelled with a PH, not an F, farming and food products. And this is all about growing food crops to contain pharmaceutical drugs within them or artificially increase nutritional content. All four subcategories, that's blue, red, white, and green, overlap to a degree. But biotech is all the same at a very fundamental level. It all involves industrializing or corporatizing the genetic code of life, manipulating genes in such a way that they can be patented, owned, and profited from. If we think this through, who's profiting from these? Energy companies have an interest in biofuels. With sustainable energy becoming a world topic because of limited fossil fuels, companies are looking for the next new alternative. Everyone needs energy, so those who control it set the rates for us all. Since three-quarters of the Earth is ocean, blue biotech will be a very hot topic in coming years. So if we look at medical applications for biotechnology, it doesn't take much to realize that these can be monetized significantly. There are huge payoffs for those companies able to develop chemical medical treatments. And notice the word treatment, not cure. Treatments are much more lucrative than cures. Not to say that it doesn't happen, but to produce a cure would be limiting the money-making potential of the product in the long run. Pharma companies know this concept well, and they milk the market. With Red Biotech, production costs can be cut significantly by mass-producing without the expense of lab-costly procedures, and this means much larger profits for Big Pharma. They know that pharmaceuticals will always be in demand as long as there are people needing health care. If a new vaccine can be produced or a new drug or treatment can be created, consumers may temporarily benefit, but it is the powerful pharmaceutical companies who are raking in the multi-billions of dollars involved in the deal. And of course, biotech for industrial processes catches the interest of any mass manufacturing company. If they can produce more for less by using transgenetic material, we can be assured that they will. And when we consider the explosion in the agricultural sector as a result of biotechnology, who are the big winners? 
That's right, the mega agribusiness companies developing the seeds and the chemical pesticides to go along with them. Companies like Monsanto, DuPont, and Dow make up a monopoly of the seed market. They continue to expand worldwide, and they have their eyes on new technology that may change the trajectory of the entire industry in some very frightening ways. So Monsanto is sitting pretty well these days. They reported recently that their net income rose 22% over last year to $1.48 billion, and they predict their bottom line will increase even more this year despite their continued expensive acquisition of various companies. Now, just a couple of months ago, they spent a cool billion dollars to buy Climate Corporation, which is a weather data company that they expect will open up new horizons for them. Climate Corporation had developed a state-of-the-art system that could pinpoint weather systems with extreme accuracy. We're talking the ability to tell temperature fluctuations and precipitation differences in a single field. In fact, that's one of the main ways Monsanto plans to integrate this new weather technology into something they call field scripts. And this will allow farmers to access data systems from a handheld device like, like an iPad to predict how they should plant and treat their fields to maximize yields. Technically then, farmers can plant variations in seed that will fit with the slight variation in weather. It's all advertised as empowering farmers with new technology to benefit them. But who will really come out ahead, farmers or Monsanto? We've been down this road before and we know the answer to that question. Despite the positive outlook for farmers that Monsanto paints for this weather technology, it will, in the end, only give them more control over farmers, drawing farmers into an even greater dependence on Monsanto. Some say that the real underlying reason Monsanto purchased Climate Corporation was for access and controlling farm crop insurance, which actually comprised over three-quarters of the business when Monsanto bought it. Nearly all American farmers buy crop insurance through them. As our weather becomes more unstable due to global warming and other factors, farmers will need to rely even more heavily on insurance to protect themselves. And, once again, here we have Monsanto to the rescue, gobbling up more control. Since they now own the premier weather prediction system and the insurance platform already developed into it, Farmers will be paying Monsanto for their field script system, their new lines of GMO seeds, their chemical pesticides, and now also for crop insurance. And since this is all cutting-edge technology, the expectation is to take the next step and go internationally with it. And once that happens, it will be a major jump for Monsanto, placing them even more out of reach from the others. Let's switch gears a bit and talk about something else that's new and very troubling. Another technology being developed in green biotech right now is genome editing. This is a very new genetic engineering technique that has undergone significant advancement within the last year, and it allows individual genes to be very accurately modified without disturbing surrounding genetic material. Genome editing makes it possible to edit, delete, or add genes to a genome. This is different from regular GMO techniques in that a plant's genome can be manipulated at the subgene level, meaning parts of a single gene can be changed. 
In GMO methods, whole sections of DNA from one species are added into the DNA of a target plant. It's a matter of combining different sections of DNA to get a desired result. But in gene editing, scientists are able to make changes to the molecule sequences that make up a gene, making it possible to redesign genes to perform in different ways. They are also able to delete genes or sections of them, discreetly turning off a single function. This level of accuracy has never before been achieved, but it also brings up a disturbing aspect to the whole idea of genetic engineering. Recently, there has been a huge leap in awareness over the GMO issue. People all over the world are demanding labeling of GMOs or rejecting them altogether, and this is a good thing. As it stands, GMOs are the result of adding genes to a plant's genome and therefore are technically subject to regulation. But genome editing, this is very important to understand, genome editing gets around this because it does not necessarily add DNA. It merely changes or deletes DNA that is already there. Understand that difference. This has profound implications. What it means if genetic modification is still taking place, gene function is still being altered to achieve desired traits in plants, but it is not recognized as a GMO process and therefore does not require regulatory oversight. So in essence, nothing will change as far as biotech agribusiness companies are concerned. Nothing except the public will no longer be able to know what has been genetically engineered or not. This makes the GMO labeling issue obsolete. Dow AgriScience has already invested in genome editing technology and is in the process of implementing it into their product lines. Because it is a much less expensive alternative to existing GMO techniques, it is expected that all major biotech seed companies, including Monsanto, will be adopting the approach within the very near future. And let's switch gears again to something else very recent in the news. General Mills, has announced that it will not allow GMOs into its flagship cereal, Cheerios, and that's the original Cheerios. The rub is that although Cheerios is General Mills' best-selling cereal brand, the actual amount of GMOs found in it is technically insignificant. So for all practical purposes, original Cheerios doesn't even really contain GMOs. However, Honey Nut Cheerios and a schmear of other brands produced by General Mills do contain significant GMO content. So, as they claim to be giving in to consumer demand, by all appearances, it is merely a cheap and effective way to receive public approval and free advertising without any real change to its product. And this raises an important point about the whole GMO issue. Corporations like General Mills, Monsanto, and many, many others play on the public perception. They use stunts like this, not because of some stroke of conscience, but for business objectives. Keep in mind that General Mills donated in excess of a million dollars in 2012 to defeat the GMO labeling measure 37 in California, and just two months ago paid $600,000 toward shutting down the very same labeling bill in Washington State known as Initiative 522. So let's see donating big money to shut down the labeling of GMOs and now advertising GMO-free Cheerios. 
And speaking of public perception, the biotech industry has been recently very hard at work to discredit one of the only long-term independent studies done on GMO. Professor Seralini, a research molecular biologist from the University of Cannes in France, found that rats subsisting on a diet of Monsanto GM corn over an extended period of time developed a host of adverse health conditions, most specifically cancerous tumors. When the results were published, Seralini was met with enormous backlash from many in the GMO industry, claiming that his experimental methods were flawed, that he was practicing junk science, that he intentionally skewed the data, and that he was secretly an activist just trying to spread bad propaganda about Monsanto and the biotech industry. These corporate voices went as far as to pressure scientific journals and other publications to retract his paper and his findings, attempting to erase them from the public record. However, on his behalf, Seralini received a windfall of support from legitimate scientists and researchers around the world, collectively acknowledging the research as valid and because of it are calling for more long-term studies to be conducted. This is wonderful. At this point, several countries have reacted to Seralini's study by refusing to import GMO seeds until they are proven beyond doubt that they do not cause harm. Russia has now strongly suggested that a 10-year moratorium on GMO be implemented to allow for additional detailed studies. And according to Irina Ermakova, and I sure hope I'm pronouncing her name right, Vice President of Russia's National Association for Genetic Safety, doctors have seen a surge of diabetes and cancer in regions where Russian residents have consumed larger amounts of GMO-containing food. And she says it is necessary to ban GMOs for a 10-year period so that definitive long-term experiments and tests can be conducted. And at this point, Russia has halted all imports of GMO. There are serious storms brewing in the Foreign Relations Department that may work against this trend and drastically change the GMO landscape altogether. There is something called the Trans-Pacific Partnership, or TPP, a new and relatively unknown international trade pact crafted by multinational corporations and currently being negotiated in secret by the United States and 11 other foreign governments. It is so secret that only portions can be viewed by Congress. However, the entire content can be viewed and added to by interested corporations such as Monsanto, Walmart, Chevron, and Halliburton, among hundreds of others. And if it is approved, the TPP would establish a system of international tribunals allowing corporations to challenge the laws, regulations, and court decisions of any member country posing a threat to corporate profits. This means biotech companies could rewrite regulations and policy regarding GM foods and place them above the law as they dictate the terms of international trade. This is staggeringly immoral because consumers have no say in the decisions being made by corporations. For the sake of corporations, if the TPP is enacted, it will make the Monsanto Protection Act look like child's play. So what will 2014 hold for us? Will it be a year of victories for consumers as GMO labeling laws are passed in Oregon, Colorado, New York, Florida, and others? 
Or will there be more disheartening landslides in favor of big industry and corporate interests? There are so many new developments surfacing every day on these important topics. Developments that could mean the difference of having a bright future or one that takes a much darker path. And this is the biotech world, here and now. We are at a genetic crossroad, and I hope you continue to join me as we continue to raise our awareness together. Now I'd like to move on to a part of the show called The Listener's Voice, where folks can write into the show and share their thoughts and comments. I've dug into our bag of questions I didn't get to answering during our broadcast last year, and I've got some new ones as well I can't wait to address. So here we go. Carol Stormo wrote in and said, Hi, what a great show. I've always been interested in eating healthy and growing veggies in my garden, but now I have a whole new motivation for doing it. I really had no idea how much GMOs have become a part of our modern culture. All the information on your shows has been pretty shocking for the most part, and some downright bizarre and disturbing, including all the chemicals they spray on farms that eventually wind up on our dinner plate, which leads me to my question. I don't know if anyone's ever asked you this before, but it seems like pesticides they spray might be more of a concern than the GMOs themselves. Is this true? Like our frozen veggies from the store still having chemical sprays left on them, our fruits. Thanks if you happen to answer me on one of your shows. Well, hi, Carol. Thanks so much for writing in. Throughout the show, we've talked lots about GMOs and the pesticides that go along with them. Uh, so questions about pesticides can never be asked enough. So don't worry about bringing this topic up at all. You ask a great and really important question. The sad truth is there are chemical residues that remain on vegetables and fruits even after they have gone through processing and cleaning. And although the EPA does, you know, set tolerance levels on what, you know, is legally allowable, uh, trace amounts, you know, uh, are still present in varying degrees. But even far worse, because fruits and vegetables tend to have more insect problems than other crops and because bugs ingest plant tissues, many crops are genetically engineered to produce insecticides inside their cells. So when bugs go to nibble on a plant, they die. And this may be somewhat effective for bugs, but it's very troubling for consumers because we can't clean these toxins off of the food. We can't do it. Uh, so although biotech and food companies claim that the toxin level is so low it doesn't cause a health risk, there is scientific evidence showing otherwise, Carol. Uh, GMO insecticide can still continue to replicate itself inside humans after it's ingested. This is a frightening, frightening problem, and uh, it, it's led many doctors to conclude that a large percentage of GI tract problems are a result of these GM uh, bacteria accumulating, you know, in our gut over time. So, uh, you know, what do we do? The best thing is to avoid GMO fruits and veggies altogether, uh, but this still may not be enough, unfortunately. We can't assume that just because produce is not GMO, uh, that it is pesticide-free. There are still residues on many produce items in stores. So we have to clean our produce really, really well before preparing to eat it, uh, and some of the worst foods for pesticide residue are apples, celery, cucumber, cherry tomatoes, uh, grapes, peaches, green beans, and strawberries. 
And just to wrap up, Carol, you know, suggestions for uh, cleaning produce would be to use warm water and mild dish soap, uh, but, of course, rinse thoroughly. There are also uh, commercial produce washes designed to remove pesticide residues, and those can usually be found in the produce section of your grocery store. Uh, Of course, if you are ambitious, you can make your own pesticide uh, remover by mixing one teaspoon of sea salt per cup of water or by diluting vinegar with water. And just soak your fruits and veggies in the mixture and then just rinse. Another method would be to peel the skin off veggies and fruits whenever you can. Uh, However, one of the best ways to avoid pesticide residue is to buy organic. And as you probably already know, their chemical pesticide regulations are very stringent. And of course, they don't contain GMOs. So this is is really an important topic, and I hope we continue to ask the questions and stay aware of what is going on with our food. Thanks again for writing in. And next up, we have a question from Stephen Early. Uh, I was wondering if you knew of any advantage to eating kosher foods with respect to GMO. Do you know if kosher products are GMO conscious? Thanks. Well, hi, Steve. You know, thanks for your really interesting question. Uh, I'm not Jewish, uh, so I can't be quoted as an expert on kosher foods, but the research I have done suggests a shift in the thinking about what should be considered kosher. And in April of this year, the Kosher uh, Natural Food Certifiers, which is an organization, you know, that certifies vegan, kosher, and organic foods, uh, announced that any food product containing GMOs are no longer eligible to be certified as kosher under their their Apple K certification program. Uh, they said that although in a strict sense the kosher food law does not prohibit GMOs, they still do not view it as being natural. So even though this group is taking a stand against GMOs, the rest of the Jewish world has not fully recognized any distinction between GMO and other food sources. So bottom line, just because it's kosher doesn't mean it's not GMO, at least not right now. Uh, But it is commendable that groups like Natural Food Certifiers are out there and they're sticking to their guns. Uh, So great question. Thanks for writing into the show. And up next, uh, we have Charlotte S. Uh, She writes in and says, Hi, Ms. Kavanaugh. I really do love your show and always tune in when I'm able. My husband and I live in southern Florida. I don't know how much you've heard about the mosquito problem down here, especially in the Keys, but they've been planning to release genetically modified mosquitoes into the wild in Key West to try and wipe out the threat of jungle fever. We're very concerned. It's bad enough that GMOs are in our food, but what happens when one of these bugs bite us. Very curious to know your thoughts. Thank you. Hi, Charlene. Thanks so much for writing in and for your question. Yes, I have heard that the Florida Keys Mosquito uh, Control District plans to release GM mosquitoes very soon against, as I'm sure you know, a huge public outcry. Uh, And apparently the plan is to have the genetically engineered mosquitoes pass a lethal gene to their offspring, killing any newborns before they reach maturity. Uh, So here again we have this brilliant idea of tampering with nature in hopes of fixing a problem. But in doing so, other problems inevitably start popping up. And um, the producers of the GM mosquito claim that it would be harmless to humans if, if we were to be bitten by one. However, as with any genetic alteration, there are unexpected variations that could pose a risk. And this is why people, particularly Floridians, are so uh, upset over this and concerned. 
we know that genetic information can pass from mosquito to the host uh, that it bites. So in the off chance that one of these is a genetic anomaly, it could infect people, and that would not be good. Uh, another concern scientists have expressed is that by eradicating this species of mosquito, another unwelcome species will fill in the ecological void. For example, the aggressive tiger mosquito from Southeast Asia. So my thoughts, I think that tampering with nature in any way is a mistake. And if we look, there is always a company behind the technology wanting to push it into the public domain for business reasons. The GM Mosquito is no exception, uh, and in this case, a company from the UK is producing the insects and stands to gain a hefty contract uh, when they are released in Florida. Our ecosystems are too complex. We will just never be able to outguess or predict all the outcomes to these biotechnologies. We need to leave nature alone. Uh, so my very best to you, and uh, thanks so much for writing in the show. And with that, I've unfortunately run out of time in the segment during this broadcast. Uh, but if you would like your question or comment to be featured on the show, I would love to hear from you. Just pay a visit to the website at www.geneticcrossroadradio.com and follow the link to the listener's voice. Once there, fill in the form and just send me along your thoughts. I'll feature as many as I can during each broadcast. Your voice really does matter and it will help make a difference in both the future of our food and our human health. This show is a conversation, and that's where all change begins, so let's get talking. I also want to tell you about the Facebook page for the series. If you are enjoying the show and would like to participate in some more interactive communication, I'd love for you to come and give a like and join in at www.facebook.com slash Anna Kavanaugh, Mad Science, Genetic Crossroad. And also, the show is on Twitter, and that's GMO Mad Science. Thank you for listening to Mad Science, the Genetic Crossroad. Please join me every Tuesday for more on GMO and the biotech industry. On next week's show, that's January 28th, we'll continue our conversation with an episode named Climbing the Food Chain. Who are all the players involved in bringing food to our table? As the conflict rages on about GMO labeling, who of these players stand to lose or gain the most? Understanding exactly who is involved and what their stake is in the agricultural process may shed some light on the motivations behind pushing GM foods on consumers and why certain companies and institutions are willing to spend millions to keep us from knowing. I hope you'll join me for next week's broadcast. If we destroy nature, surely nature will destroy us. For while we may hold dominion over nature, we do not possess its wisdom. Until next time, be well, be healthy, and be informed.